Your service matters. Whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman, first responder, it matters when you serve. It's about a purpose-driven life. If people wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher, what do I tell them? I say, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? We all show some form of valor. Common people doing uncommon things. Loyalty, duty, honor, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage. They laid down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives? It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love, clear convictions and beliefs. It's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free. The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller, he said, my one piece of advice is read our Constitution and run your lives according to the Constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom, makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect, but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to, in the words of our founding document, in order to form a more perfect union. There are going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much, much better place. Greetings, my name is Leo Manchetti, alongside Blake Schmida, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Hello, folks. Today on the Active Valor podcast, we're privileged to have Rear Admiral Sonny Masso on the podcast. How are you doing, Admiral? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. You've been the executive director of the Naval Historical Foundation for a little over two years now. Can you give us an overview of the foundation and its missions? Yes, thank you for the question. We've been established since 1926. And specifically, we're established to preserve and honor naval history, remembering the legacy of those who came before us. And we also educated and hopefully inspire. And by passing the legacy on to generations who follow, they learn the lessons of the heroes whose shoulders we stand upon every day. As a leader in the foundation, what is your main like goals and ways to like help the members that work under you? Any interest in history is something that we value uh, equally. And we have uh, scholars who have written, you know, 15, 20 books, and we have members that are budding uh, historians. Funny story, uh, I was acquainted with a midshipman at the Naval Academy, and in her very first freshman year, she's taking you know, electricity, and she's taking all kinds of chemistry and math, calculus, you know, all these studies. 
And her toughest class was naval history because she really had no context. And of course, as she uh, was exposed to it, she got more and more interested in it. So I would start by saying that the whole idea is to provide content for every type of member we might have. And we do that with a number of different tools. We have a Thursday tidings, which every Thursday we push out electronically. And we sort of celebrate events that occurred in naval history over that given week. We have a second Saturday that tries to do the same thing. And it's really a webinar. And we bring in as many people who participated in either a battle or an event or a heroic act to give an eyewitness account of the content, but we always try to draw a historian from the Naval History and Heritage Command in to kind of give us the ground truth. And then we bring in a warfighter who who adds the anecdotal context, and we think that's of great value. And then finally, we have a periodical four times a year called Pull Together, where we sort of synopsize events and things that are working in our way forward. Right now, we're looking at uh, September being the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We're looking at uh, December as being the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. In November, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the naval ship USS Olympia, bringing the first unknown soldier back from Europe during World War I. And then that actually occurred at the Navy Yard. And then there was a catafalque or caisson that took that, uh, those very special and precious remains to the site that they're, they're located at now. So, so we try to do that through all of those forms. And to that end, we celebrate every aspect of where, wherever you are on the spectrum of naval history knowledge. We try to cover all the bases. What do you guys do in particular to honor uh, those special anniversaries? Well, we do in a few ways. For starters, we will write about it and then bring as much information as can be consumed, maybe a half hour reading. So we do that through those vehicles, the Thursday tidings and the webinars, as I suggested. But the other thing we do is sometimes we'll have events where we specifically celebrate something. So last year at the, or year year and a half ago before the pandemic, we had a wonderful event at uh, the Decatur House in downtown DC, very close to the White House, where we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. We brought in a panel of uh, historians and and, uh, book authors and things, and we also had C-SPAN cover it. So we try to do that pretty pretty rigorously, and we try not to miss a single thing. That sounds great. Are anniversaries usually some of your guys' biggest events every year? Yes, they can be. And of course, our board of directors is amazing. We have former secretaries of the Navy, John Warner, who is the namesake of guided missile destroyer, I think 126. We have former secretary of the Navy, KJ Braithwaite. We have retired admirals and giants in industry. Our foundation chairman is Admiral William J. Callsign Fox Fallon. And he was one of the longest serving naval officers in the naval history as a four star. So he was not just our vice chief of naval operations, but he also served as the commander of United States Pacific Command and then as commander of United States Central Command. 
And so they bring a lot of special expertise to our insights and, and we're able to, to cover a lot more than just like a major battle, but we will cover, say, something like the winging ceremony of the, one of the first African-American aviators, Jesse L. Brown from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, or we'll celebrate on the occasion of the ship naming by, oh, by the way, um, Secretary Braithwaite of our next uh, aircraft carrier, the Dory Miller. And of course, Dory Miller was a hero in, in uh, Pearl Harbor and lost his life later in the war. So we try to really cover as many things as physically possible. And there are some unique heroes that I could mention, you know, in a greater context, if you're interested, but, but we try to leave no stone unturned if that's at all possible. I think it's great that you guys take the detail and attention to celebrate individuals rather than just the whole battle itself. So it just goes into more depth. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy from the Naval Academy class of 21, and if you look at his lucky bag, and that's the Naval Academy yearbook, you would learn about him as a midshipman, that he was a leader as a midshipman, but he was also a great athlete. And then fast forward to the Battle of the Coral Sea, he's now the carrier air group commander on a carrier, and he is uh, inflicting great damage on the Japanese fleet. And as he attempts to return to his own carrier to land and refuel and get back up in the air, he finds that the flight deck is fouled and, and there's no place for him to land. So instead of doing any hand wringing, what he does is he goes back into the fray, as it were, with overhead zeros flying overhead and dodging bullets and everything. And up until the last second of fuel that he has left, he's providing battle damage assessment until he, he says the final words, so long, people. And then as his plane is, is literally crashing into the sea with no fuel, he is giving battle damage reports to the point of his silence on the line indicating that he's crashed. And his name is Bill Alt, A-U-L-T. And they named a destroyer after him in the war, in World War II, but they also named Alt Field, which is a training landing field. But these are the people who most people have never heard of, but their, their contributions are immeasurable. Yeah, that's, that's an unbelievable story, you know, just to imagine kind of courage and valor that people like that have to have. You know, and I, I'm sure we'll come back to those stories, but I know we both want to get to know you a little bit better as well. So we know you've been highly successful in both your naval service and in the private sector. And we just want to know what has driven and motivated your accomplishments. Thank you for, for saying that. You know, when you're living in the moments, you know, you don't necessarily look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm successful. I, don't, I Certainly that's, that would not be me. But in the sober light of one's life, and you really kind of look at what are those factors that, uh, provide the environment, you know, I think it begins with your family. And I know for, for me personally, I had the blessing of a father and stepfather who not only were immensely motivating to me, but they were non-competitive with one another. So, so it was okay to have a real solid relationship with both gentlemen. But my father was uh, from Tallinn, Estonia, and he was conscripted into the German army in World War II and fought on the Russian front. But it was kind of near the end of the war. He was only 15. But imagine being 15, dodging bullets in, in the Russian forests, right? 
And, and so he didn't speak German especially, but he had to learn it on the fly. And then he was captured by the Belgians and was in a camp for about, you know, eight or nine months, getting to the healthy weight of about 80 pounds. And then because he wasn't a Nazi, he was conscripted to guard, you know, Nazi war criminals in Nuremberg. And then he was flown to the United States, where his first job was to pick oranges with uh, Mexican laborers in Orange County, California. So from those days and from his service in the Korean War with the U.S. Army and in the diligence with which he acquired a great knowledge uh, as a master tradesman, as an electrician, was able to really accomplish so many things in his life that motivated me. And then my stepfather was a retired Navy captain who had five commands and World War II vintage person. He, he was from the Naval Academy, class of 43. So both these individuals inspired me and kind of gave me a context of how to be a, a solid guy with, say, blue-collar-centric people, but also with, you know, with white-collar, I would say. And then to extend that on, uh, nobody who goes to the reserve component can really achieve promotion success without the help of their employer. And I worked for a woman named Deborah Alderson, who was amazingly supportive and gave me all the flexibility I needed to work in creative ways where I could support the Navy with a, a large investment of my personal time, but also make that time up on the other end of, for her. So those were big motivators for me. And there's an ethos, I think, that I learned from a motivational, motivational person named Zig Ziglar, who always said, you will always get what you want in your life if you help other people get what they want in their life. And I think that when you do that, then your enlisted people support you, your co colleagues support you, will always seem to have your back. And I was really lucky in all those areas. People define success in a lot of different ways, but I really like your definition and, you know, some of the things that you found to be some of your biggest accomplishments and motivators. I really like that. You've held a variety of different titles. What has work as a founder, commander, and senior fellow taught you about what it means to serve? Well, I remember my mother was, was always a volunteer at, say, church and things like that. And so... You know, we would have the fish fry, she'd be in charge of it, or we'd have the chicken fry. And so it seemed like my brother and I were always uh, her conscripted laborers, you know, so she would volunteer to be the leader. And then my brother and I would be the worker bees. And, uh, but at the end of a successful event, you know, we always felt satisfied. And, and really, what does that convey to meaning? It means that, it means that, you know, you have a propensity to be a servant leader. And in everything that we're going to talk about here, I think uh, everything starts and stops with a servant leader, meaning that you subordinate yourself for the best uh, intentions of anyone who's subordinate to you. So, you know, enlisted people that work for you, employees that work for you, things of that nature. But uh, I think I'm a voracious reader, and I always have been, even in the earliest days. Uh, in the sixth grade, I asked for and uh, received a, a, a subscription to Time Magazine. And literally, it would show up at the mailbox on Friday, and I would run home from school, grab that magazine and read it cover to cover. And when you do that, you know, you get informed about, you know, some pretty important 
news, and particularly in those days, it was civil rights, it was voting rights, it was the war on poverty, you know, profoundly centered around President Lyndon Johnson and what was going on in our society. And, and so those were things that our country needed a special leadership in those days. I think I'm connected to a, a Bible uh, verse from the book of Luke that says, you know, from everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And that kind of just comes back to the simple point, put me in coach. You know, I want to be on the field to play. I want to be making a difference. And I think the way you make that difference is by being a servant leader. Yeah, sure. Speaking of uh, servant leader, you know, you have a pretty big role as executive director of the Naval Historical Foundation. And we know in the past you said it's a great opportunity. Could you tell us a little bit more about what specifically you enjoy about that position? Well, I, I love our Navy and I love our nation. And I love the fact that the, the whole notion of from the sea is so much more important than many people give or many scholars give credit for. And uh, there's a great book that I just finished by Patrick O'Donnell called Indispensables. And so the Indispensables tell a story about how everything that George Washington did in defeating the British in, in the Revolutionary War was fundamentally enabled by passage of equipment from the sea. It was uh, ships hijacking British ships with gunpowder and some of the essentials that we couldn't get anywhere else. We're able to tell stories in a way that elucidate the heroics of those who pulled off you know, what they needed to do, but it kind of creates, a, there's an ethos and a behavior of sailors who've been successful and have mattered and made a difference. And so those stories are the most interesting stories that you can tell. And then uh, there's another area that you'll think I'm crazy, but I, I really believe that our ships have souls and the souls are connected to the namesake and the life of the sailors that bring a ship to life when it's commissioned. And in fact, that's what a sponsor will say when given the word, bring our ship to life. And this is when the crew mans the rails and they come aboard the ship and all of the electronic equipment is rotating and radiating and it's, you know, the whistles and bells are going off. It's uh, steam valves are erupting and it just wakes up from this cold state of an inanimate object into a life. And of course our crews bring that life to a ship, give that ship the soul. And it, it's interesting and people will tell you this and, and they don't even have to believe what I said, but they'll, there are ships that, you know, they were good from day one. And there were ships that were not as good from day one. And I think it always goes back to, you know, that energy that was drawn in by the bringing the ship to life process. And so we like to celebrate that and talk about it. And, and there's some unsung heroes. There's a, a gentleman named Ernest Evans who, who commanded, I believe, the Johnston in the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And he was an American Indian from Oklahoma. And he had kind of a ragtag crew of third teamers. They're a little bit older than other crews. The mission of the ship wasn't as glamorous as other ships could be. And yet he trained these people that the most important ship that they served in and the role that they would have would be inviolate to success. And 
So his crew, you know, believed that they were vastly more relevant than they could have ever been defined as. And they were heroic and they all perished, but they perished in a great cause. I mean, literally, he pulled his ship alongside so close uh, a battleship that they were firing over his bow. They couldn't lower the uh, aperture of the guns enough to hit the ship. And so he was launching torpedoes, anti-submarine torpedoes, at the lowest setting of depth setting and was just pounding these guys. And it was kind of like the scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they were being chased by these uh, bounty hunters, you know, like, who are those guys? And, and this is what we see in heroism uh, every day. And I love to tell those stories. I love to bring those names to life. I love to celebrate and honor their lives on that day. And it's almost a mission and purpose with my staff uh, to do that. And I, and I think we do a nice job. And working in collaboration with Sam Cox, uh, Admiral Sam Cox and his great people, at the Naval History and his Heritage Command upstairs, you know, we get all this great information and we just put it together collaboratively and, and it makes it very enjoyable. In naval warfare, there's a sense of man versus man, but is there also a sense of man versus nature when you're out in the water? Yeah, well, you know, it, there's so many aspects to that, you know, for starters, in, uh, say, anti-submarine warfare, you know, it's, it's important to know the environment, not just on the surface, but also, you know, in temperature, salinity, and pressure of the ocean, and how deep is the ocean, or how shallow is the ocean, because you want to maximize the capabilities of your equipment, your torpedoes, your sensors like sonars, and otherwise. And, and we have different tools, you know, one of the most powerful tools is our helicopter. And so to send a helicopter out 60 miles to a, uh, an annulus of a convergent zone where you know the submarine knows where it needs to be. And it's, it's a very elegant math solution that's dependent upon everything. It's dependent on oceanography. It's dependent on buoy sensors, on how sound propagates through water and all the other factors with that. And yeah, it's, it's a great thing. It's an absolute charge. And people, this is what they love to do. Um, and, and what we do very well. So many intricacies to that. That's really impressive. Something a little bit more simplified uh, is sports. And when I was researching you, one of the most interesting things I found is you wrote a sports column in high school called Sunnyside. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I was a little boy, I told you I was the, the dork who got the Time Magazine subscription, but we were Los Angeles Herald Examiner people for many years. And that was an afternoon delivery. And so I would run home and actually calculate batting averages. I, you know, like in math, I was able to, if Maury Wills went three for four that day, I would be able to calculate his batting average right in the moment. But in the joke in my family was that 80% of my brain were uh, sports statistics and song lyrics. So it, it wasn't just sports, it was rock and roll. But I, I loved everything about sports. And, um, and I would listen to, while not so much an Angels fan, but more a Dodgers fan, I would listen to both teams because one team would play in the East Coast, you'd get the game at four. The next team would play, you know, at seven. And in those days, and by the way, this is what's going to kill baseball, 
these games would be over in uh, under two hours and 15 minutes or so. The games were quick in, in, in that. But uh, I was always interested in writing and I was always interested in sports reporting. And so I was the sports editor my junior year and of the, what we call the Triton. And I want to say the Triton came out every other week or maybe it came out once a month. And so, you know, I was the guy that would work with the local newspaper and I would phone in scores and I had a network of people that went to other schools. And so I would call in and say that, you know, this school defeated this other school, you know, 21 to 17. And so I had a relationship with the big paper, the, the San Clemente Sun Post, it was called. And they really trusted me. And, you know, they gave me bylines and did things. But what I found was difficult was when you write something, you know, so, so-and-so dropped a pass in the end zone and it would cost us a game. Not, not that I'm a hater. I'm not a hater right now or today. But, you know, when you write stuff like that, people don't like you, you know, especially if you're playing sports, you know, you're on the team that you're playing and you say, well, so yeah, his, you know, he had two errors. He dropped the ball and he threw the ball into the dugout and we lost the game two to one. That is what it is uh, in, a, in a manner of speaking. But when you're writing sports, it's important not to be playing them if you want to have friends, especially with the coaches. So I knew that I was going to graduate early from high school. And so I approached uh, my advisor and asked her to consider, you know, just giving somebody else the sports editor position. And so she did, but she asked me if I would do a column. So I did a column called Sunnyside, and I could actually freely write whatever I wanted to write about. And so I did and didn't make many more friends in a sense, but and as good sports writers, you don't make friends if you saw the movie Almost Famous, you know, where the character from Cream Magazine played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman tells Cameron Crowe's character uh, who's writing for Rolling Stone that don't make friends with the band, okay? And this is a, a lesson in journalism. But anyway, I loved writing the column. I love writing. And I've always been a voracious writer to the letters to the editor, you know, whatever, you know, I've, I've written my whole life. Kind of moving away from the sports editing side and, you know, getting into some players. Uh, we know that the NHF, you know, aims to preserve the honor and legacy of those who came before us. What kind of legacy do you think ballplayers and athletes like Bob Feller and others have created for our nation? Well, when you're mentioning a special group of people, and of course, Bob Feller, it was uh, believed that he was the very first major league player to enlist, you know, and of course, the war, we were kind of in a position during those days where we were not so much involved. There wasn't a person alive that didn't understand what was going on in Europe and other locales. But he was driving from his home in Iowa to Chicago to sign a contract for the Indians when he heard about this and he kind of fundamentally pulls over enlists and the person who enlisted him was uh, the former heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Dempsey and kind of a neat story. And then off he went and became, you know, leader of a gun turret, you know, on the USS Alabama and served in combat arms uh, in two wars. And of course, uh, still service over self servant leadership, his, devotion to his country far exceeded his devotion to any personal causes or personal ethos whatsoever. It was 
simply, what does my country need me to do? Thus, I will do that. A vast departure from what we just witnessed in the Olympics uh, the, just a few days ago. But, uh, you know, another guy comes to mind, uh, and there are so many. And by the way, the book by Peter Fertig, which I've read and, and I have here somewhere, we did a second Saturday on it. It's called Walk of Heroes, Profiles of Valor. And it really laser focused on Hall of Famers. But say a Jerry Coleman, uh, he's the best example of someone I could mention. So Jerry Coleman, Rookie of the Year, 1951 for the Yankees and spends three years in the war as a Marine Corps fighter pilot, 47 to 50 something combat uh, missions, comes back and Billy Martin beats him out for second base with the Yankees. Kind of his career goes into a decline in a manner of speaking. And when asked, you know, later in his life, because he was the uh, radio voice of the San Diego Padres, managed on the field for them for a couple of years when I lived there, you know, he said, hey, you know, I, in a trade, I, it was the greatest experience of my life. I wouldn't trade my baseball career for anything. But you look at Yogi Berra, 17-year-old Yogi, before he even played baseball, has taken Marines to the, you know, he's delivering them to the beaches of Omaha Beach. And, you know, they're not, they're not thinking about anything other than, you know, the mission at hand. One of my heroes, and I was able to see him pitch uh, late in his career, Warren Spahn, won 363 games, was, is the winningest left-handed pitcher in the history of baseball, Cy Young being the winningest right-handed pitcher and winningest pitcher. But 363 wins is just unfathomable and probably will never be broken. And he was asked, well, you know, if you had had the three years back, you know, that you weren't serving in Patton's Third Army in the Battle of the Bulge, and you hadn't gotten wounded, and you hadn't done all the valorous things that you did, which included Bronze Stars and Purple Hearts and all of those, uh, could you have won 400 games? And his point was, I wouldn't have won 363 games if I hadn't been, had that war service. And the other thing he said, and I heard him say this, his mouth to my ear, was that stress is not runners at second and third with nobody out, okay? That's not stress. So, you know, it's a whole different thing. You know, it's when you're dodging bullets and, you know, you're freezing and all, the, all those things. But there was some extraordinary bravery. And I want to give a, a special mention to the Negro Leagues, because unlike uh, the book, uh, Walk of Heroes, that Peter Furtick focused on, and again, it was about Hall of Fame members, but in the Negro Leagues, they didn't go barnstorming. They didn't sell war bonds. They didn't play exhibition baseball. They served in combat operations. They were, uh, they were amazingly brave, and, and their service was completely sacrificial. Before you go, back to this current state of baseball, something you mentioned that I think is so important is pace of play in the game. And you mentioned how back in the day games took about like two hours and like 15 minutes. And it's, now it seems games are taking like three and a half, four hours, especially with commercials and all this marketing that they have to do. What do you recommend they do to speed up the pace of play in the MLB? Well, you know, tough question. Thanks for the question. Uh, Bob Costas wrote a book talking about it and everybody's sort of got their own flavor. But, you know, I think that, you know, back in the day, there were a couple of fundamentals. One is you had a four-man pitching staff. And, you know, the Dodgers had, uh, in, that, in those days, uh, Claude Osteen was a lefty, Sandy Koufax was a lefty, Drysdale and Sutton 
were righties or Johnny Padres was a lefty. So there was a time when the Dodgers had three lefties and one righty and, but it was a four man rotation. And this is why no one's going to win, you know, 30 games again, like Denny McLean did in 1968. The pitchers went deep into the games, you know, the year that Koufax last year, and arguably he was very injured and debilitated by arthritis. He won 27 games, but he had 33 complete games. Max Scherzer, and I love Max Scherzer, doesn't have 27 complete games in his whole career. Or if he does, it's right at 27. So there's this propensity to change pitchers. So you get a runner on second and third. We're going to go to the short guy, and he's going to, we're going to try to get him to throw a sinker, which will give a ground ball to, to end the inning. And then we bring in another guy, and we bring in another guy. And we've got the righty-lefty matchup, you know. And one of the early geniuses of the platoon baseball behaviors was Earl Weaver in the Orioles. And he had Ken Lowenstein and Kurt Bleffery, and he had Ken Singleton. And he, if it was a righty-lefty matchup, you know, he would always try to bring that greater strength to bear. We didn't see that that much with pitchers. Now we see phenomena such as the shift, right? If you're left-handed, we're going to see a shift. The third baseman's playing second base along with the second baseman. Shortstop's kind of covering third and short. And you've got, you know, a guy in in shallow right field. Not that those maneuvers necessarily hold the game up. It's the, I think it's the numerous pitching changes that, that do it more than anything else. And then, you know, back in the day, you know, you see batters today, they've got to adjust their gloves between every at bat, they've got to spit, scratch themselves, you know, you know, everybody's got their little thing that, you know, it's not just on the pitchers, but it's, it's on the batters and everybody else. And I want to make a point about it. And I want to say it was uh, Bryant Gumbel and Bryant Gumbel had three numbers uh, that he called out and it was three, 54 and nine. And it went to the health of baseball. And he said, three represents that games are vastly over three hours in length. And back when I was a kid, you know, my dad pick us up, game started at 7.30, we'd be home as elementary school kids in time for our normal bedtime, having seen a nine inning game. In fact, my father said uh, to us, and I said to my kids, Massos don't leave sporting events early, okay? We stay for the whole ride. And, and, and we did that and we still got home by bedtime. You know, not true today. So three representing three, hours and 56 minutes, you know, in some cases. Then uh, the number 54 is the average age of your truest fan is 54 years old. Are you happy with that MLB? And and then finally, uh, nine uh, represents 9% of MLB are African Americans. And so this goes to the very core of the health of the seed corn of baseball, where uh, young little leaguers aren't playing little league anymore in that cohort. They're choosing other sports. They're doing other things because it's just not worth it. So baseball has its work to do. And if they can stop being greedy with these monster contracts and worrying about what the, the networks do and having five commercials per inning that last five minutes, you know, they're going to have to fix that. I don't believe they will. That's yeah. a scary point about the average age being 54. Of the, of the truest fan. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know where he got his data, but it seems to make sense. But. I think the game is in a weird position because, you know, I think the fans, you know, as you said, are 
obviously a lot older, but I think the demeanor of the players is as young as ever. And they're a lot of them are so electric. So they're, they have the, the tools to make it an interesting league, but like you said, they got to shorten the games down because a lot of people, they want their content and short, short time spans. So seems like what the NBA has done is made the league about the players. In the MLB, they have so many marketable players, but I don't know if they market their players well enough to the average fan out there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, your point's well taken, and I'll tell you what's going to be a sea change. You know, there, there were two things in the, in the NCAA. The first one was this notion of the transfer portal. And so the transfer portal is almost like a creation of musical chairs where – you may, you know, maybe Nick Saban promised you that you would be his number one starting guy at, at a given position. And then say, you, you know, you get there and you twist your knee and then somebody else beats you out and you're no longer that individual they're invested in. So that person may leave to go to Central Florida to play and start right away or, or not, you know, maybe, and sometimes guys get left out. The new phenomena is this new name image likeness and, you know, I think the quarterback at Alabama, he's never taken a snap under center, has already accrued a million dollars of endorsements. And so, uh, okay, uh, great. It's a great country. I got it. But, you know, what do other players who have two letters and two national championships think about that? And is that going to cause problems in the locker room? And so now you've got the transfer portal affecting junior college transfers affecting high schools, people that they will recruit in the first place. We'll just get that guy in the transfer portal. It's a whole new day in college football and stand by when Texas and Oklahoma join the SEC. Yeah, there are a lot of changes going on. Also, I, I know uh, Reggie Bush, there are some questions about whether he's going to get his Heisman back and they still haven't given it back to him yet. So, What do you think? Should they give it back to him? And honestly, I, I don't really have like too much of an opinion on it. I feel like what he did on the field speaks for itself. So I think he should get it back because like he was one of the most electric players ever in the college game. So, Yeah, I'm not a hater of Reggie Bush at all, but I think that the consequences should have been rendered to the institution. If you weren't happy with the payout that his parents were receiving, then, you know, who, who did that? You know, was that Reggie? No, it wasn't Reggie. It, it was USC, right? So yeah. can't blame Reggie for what USC offered him. I mean, how can you turn that down? Yeah, then, uh, of course, growing up in LA, you know, uh, Sam Darnold actually went to my high school and Bill Kenny, who played 11 years for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And of course, a different era, but, but yeah, we were all clo- always close to LA you know, at the Coliseum, LA, UCLA, USC for, for my whole life. So. Well, we could definitely talk about sports for like another hour and a half. At least oh, we can talk about it longer than that. <laughs> did you see the, I know you get to edit all this, but did you see the, the webinar we did on, on baseball and World War II? Did I, you I don't think I was able to see. Did it's you see on, that, Blake? It's on YouTube. It's uh, Naval Historical Foundation. Um, it's called Batter Up. Watch it. It's it's one hour. It's it's. I think you'll like it a lot. Okay, I'll give it a view definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all for today, folks. I would like to thank Rear Admiral Masso for joining us today. He was a great guest, and uh, we'll see you next time. Really appreciate it, guys. To our listeners, 
This conversation with Rear Admiral Sonny Masso concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This conversation was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, the Department of the United States Navy, Major League Baseball, USAA, BWXT, Huntington Angles, and the Cleveland Indians. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevalorward.org. There you can learn more about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor Podcast and more. For Leo Manchetti and Blake Schmida and everyone here at the American Valor Podcast, thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time.